Welcome to this edition of IFLR's Closing Conditions podcast. My name is Carrie Lai, Interim Managing Editor at International Financial Law Review. My guest today will be Kevin Liu, Head of Investment Insights at IDEG. I'll be talking to Kevin about the Ethereum merge, the implications of OFAC sanctions, and regulatory developments in the crypto space in Asia. It's good to have you with us, Kevin. Pleasure to be here, Carrie. To start off, let's talk about the Ethereum merge, which happened in September. The transition from a proof-of-work to proof-of-stake model has been a significant milestone for crypto. What have been the consequences? Thanks for the question. So uh, just to uh, reiterate, I recently gave a live Bloomberg TV interview uh, probably about three weeks ago as Ethereum went onto the proof-of-stake network, transitioning away from the proof-of-work. Um, so this is not investment advice, just reiterating an opinion uh, that I gave on live TV. So. Um, you know, really, it's something that I've, uh, it's been proven to be correct since I spoke about these opinions publicly. Um, I cautioned on calling the bottom on pricing, and certainly we could still uh, effectively go lower. Uh, I, I was correct, and here we are now. So very much to reiterate that macro is still very much in the driver's seat of risk asset pricing. Um, weaker prices uh, we've witnessed since merge. However, I personally remain long-term optimistic on Ethereum and the proof of stake uh, consensus mechanism. Um, you know, I still think that uh, strategy-wise, long-term investors that believe that layer one decentralized smart contract uh, protocols are the next generation of supercomputers and companies, uh, they can look to accumulate slowly uh, over time uh, in, in, into this ecosystem. So with that, um, no news was actually good news uh, post the merge. Uh, it was effectively one of the hot swap events where uh, you know people were concerned that something was going to break on the chain and all that value, all those DeFi and uh, decentralized protocols uh, were going to stop working. Uh, however, it, it continued to march on uh, uninterrupted as it transitioned. So really the fundamentals of this particular proof of stake Ethereum chain have changed. Uh, and ultimately have improved. Its energy consumption uh, has reduced by about 95%. Uh, the supply of ETH now has become deflationary and has decreased over 90%. And certainly, I think it's very healthy uh, for the uh, wider digital asset community because you've got Bitcoin, which is a proof-of-work chain. That's the oldest chain uh, that exists. Uh, and the proof of stake Ethereum chain can sort of coexist. So that brings uh, two very real live use cases within the industry that that, that are existing now. Um, I, I think some of the consequences we probably have to think about uh, potentially for the longer term is that, uh, you know, I remain quite uh, optimistically bullish on, on Ethereum. Uh, however, if its price goes really parabolic and, and, and exponentially more expensive, in the longer term, uh, it becomes unusable because uh, to for the listeners, uh, you actually have to burn some ETH or you have to spend some ETH. No one really wants to spend a very expensive asset uh, that you've obviously uh, took time accumulating. Uh, so there is uh, something there that uh, you for users, you probably want to have a certain range where Ethereum does accrete in value. However, you want, you want to caution on the pricing becoming too expensive. Um, now, further with that, also, while there are over 300,000 nodes and stakers on the Ethereum network, but, you know, we users need to be aware 
that uh, around about 40% of stake ETH is held within uh, the top 100 wallets. So there's a little bit of a concentration risk issue that's now occurred um, as a consequence of the proof uh, of a stake transition. Okay, interesting. So related to Ethereum, OFAC recently sanctioned the Ethereum-based Tornado Cash. What are the implications of this? Right. Okay. Uh, so re- related to Ethereum and the OFAC sanctions, uh, to update listeners, I think you know OFAC obviously is a pretty powerful uh, entity. It's uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Control in the US, and they accuse Tornado Cash, uh, which is effectively a ETH DeFi protocol mixer of illicit activity. Uh, there was a group uh, they accused uh, called the Lazarus Group in North Korea of actually shifting some hacked digital assets to this mixer, which uh, aims to, in, with the aim of actually trying to hide uh, their traces of, of activity. Uh, just keep in mind that because the the public chain blockchains out there that drive many of the digital assets that you might have heard in the news, um, this can be audited, this can be viewed live from your desk. If you know how to read uh, blockchain explorers, you can actually monitor a transaction um, you know, anywhere in the world because the chains are publicly available. And because DeFi is open source code, uh, you know, people are moving, let's say, these uh, ill-gotten gains to these mixes in order to try um, uh, mask their, uh, their trail. So therefore, OFAC kind of saw this, and then the, according to the evidence that they accumulated, and therefore they placed uh, sanctions on Tornado Cash. So this, this was actually a little bit of a, a, a first, because um, this sets an initial precedent of where sovereign state sanctions uh, is sen- censuring technology, a technology platform. Um, this is actually a little bit unprecedented because generally uh, when OFAC sanctions, it sanctions institutions and it sanctions individuals. But DeFi, as uh, this stands for decentralized finance, exists uh, as a tool on, on open source on the internet. So it, it's kind of like uh, saying that there was a, a gun manufacturer, right? And the, uh, where the, the OFAC is now sanctioning the gun, not the actual, uh, let's say, the, 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 the producer uh, of or the institution or the company of that, that weapon. So to look like DeFi obviously is a tool, as is, uh, say, a gun. So I use that analogy uh, quite loosely, uh, but uh, it's directed at, at the tool itself as opposed to the institution that, that, that sort of raised it. So, you know, obviously this caused a lot of uh, sort of concern, a lot of debate within the wider community. And then I would just add that Coinbase then led a lawsuit against uh, OFAC, um, saying that uh, the Treasury violates the, the, the First Amendment. The lawsuit claimed that the sanctions themselves are a violation of the First Amendment, which establishes the right of free speech um, to... To kind of use that uh, quite simply, uh, they're saying that code equals speech. And a little bit of the research behind that is in, um, in 1996 in Bernstein versus the Department of Justice, it was established that computer code should be considered as speech. And this was what Coinbase effectively led with. Um, and so by sanctioning this open source code, uh, the Treasury Department and OFAC is effectively limiting free speech as Coinbase would claim. So. Uh, It's obviously a sort of a complex issue uh, that we're obviously seeing there. Um, 
and while we have no issue, well, I personally don't have an issue with uh, the Treasury sanctioning bad actors, and I sort of take a, a fairly hard stance against uh, unlawful and illicit behavior. Uh, however, in, in the instance where, you know, you take this unprecedented step uh, against uh, entire technologies instead of specific individuals or corporations, uh, could that actually effectively limit uh, innovation of developers and, and sort of innovation within this space? So just I think we have to obviously look at a balance of um, innovation and regulation. Definitely interesting, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on this. Since the Ethereum merge, the SEC's Gary Gensler has indicated that proof-of-stake crypto can be considered securities. What's the impact of this, and are other regulators expected to follow? Again, uh, yeah, it's just focused on regulation. So uh, just to kind of cast my mind back, I think like around about middle of September, I think the the, the, the SEC uh, sort of came out saying, oh, you know, really, uh, this was really in a, uh, in a sort of a, a case where they were issuing a lawsuit against um, a, a YouTuber, um, which effectively alleged that uh, they, they conducted an unregistered offering of uh, crypto tokens uh, when he gathered um, sort of interest from investors. Um, so, so, so with this, I think that, you know, they, they're stating that, okay, because most Ethereum nodes are located in the US, that this effectively constitutes uh, a sort of a US person or anyone interacting uh, with this uh, constitutes a, a US person or US institution. So uh, firstly, I disagree. Um, this seems like a little bit of a land grab by the SEC with a bit of overreach uh, to say that because most transactions are being processed by Ether uh, and like 40% of activities within the US, um, you know, I, I think with Ether now moving to being proof of stake, a huge reduction in its power and energy, uh, it's not going to be a major issue for many of those nodes and validators to be moved geographic geographically by the ETH community to be based outside of the US. So that's the first thing, okay? Um, so I think that that'll naturally be a reaction and many in the, the, the industry will be thinking about how they may execute upon that. Uh, secondly, uh, any sort of concern about the legal precedent at this stage is premature. Um, I think the SEC were sort of stating that as a way to kind of get jurisdiction uh, over the particular case uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, however, it's important to remember this is merely a statement um, against uh, uh, that defendant uh, and it has no legal effect yet whatsoever. And it's likely that the defendant will challenge this case and the reasoning behind that to establish jurisdiction on that. So uh, we, we don't really have a precedent there, I think. But obviously it's uh, something to watch because nonetheless, this brief comment while mentioned in filings, it's pointed to the direction of travel by global regulators uh, as they aim to extend a longer arm into the future of decentralized economies and metaverse and web 3.0. Um, and in my view, this is going to just likely force communities to decentralize even further uh, geographically. Mm, okay, interesting. Thank you for that. So shifting gears a little bit, um, in Asia, there have been a number of regulatory developments, particularly in Singapore, which has indicated a support for crypto players, yet has maintained strong consumer protection. What have been the most welcome developments for the digital asset community? And what have been the hampering factors? Okay, so uh, having spent quite a bit of my time down in Singapore, thanks for the question. So uh, I, I can sort of offer you what I've uh, 
research and I've been speaking to people and I, as I've seen the uh, regulation uh, and the communities really sort of grow. So Singapore is definitely seeing a lot of activity. Uh, there's a lot of movement across uh, APAC and globally. Uh, recently, I was at the Token 2049 uh, conference down there, uh, which was fantastic to see such a vibrant and diverse economy uh, starting to uh, really take hold. So you can certainly say demand is there, so you can certainly say supply uh, is, is there. And uh, we'll continue to see that grow across APAC. Now, um, I'm very supportive of uh, seeing the digital asset markets professionalized, especially since I've been involved in the space since 2016. I've been a very strong supporter of institutionalization, regulation. How balanced regulation is a good net-net thing over the long term, as it indicates a long-term institutional acceptance. Um, that said, you obviously have to see how execution is handled uh, down the line. Uh, everything really comes down to that. Um, you know, we, we see. Obviously, there's been a bit of a crypto winter. There's been a few blow-ups. Uh, a couple of uh, MAS-regulated entities uh, took a turn for the worse. So what we see is uh, generally a positivity spin to sort of assure industry players and TradeFi incumbents that have made the commitment to move down there and establish uh, operations that they're not going to U-turn. Um, so I think the MAS is really aiming to anchor uh, strong, large crypto players who can value add to the digital asset ecosystem down there as long as they have strong risk management and regulatory and compliance capabilities. So a couple of things I'd, I'd sort of break it down into is the, um, uh, you know, you're splitting out the digital asset uh, uh, world. Uh, the MAS looks at it in this way, right? They look at it as um, you've got the sort of public chain markets, uh, which includes your sort of Bitcoin, your 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 Ethereum's and and, and others. <clears throat> they look at uh, CDBCs, stable coins, and then they look at what they call uh, STOs, uh, security token offerings. So starting off with the first, really, despite historical warnings, um, the MAS surveys indicate that consumers are still increasingly engaged in public in trading public chain digital assets. Uh, you know, viewed as much more speculative in nature and hence MAS will likely increase frictional retail guardrails uh, for trading these uh, public chain assets. Um, and that also includes uh, only focusing on licensed exchanges for people to be able to access them, right? Because uh, I guess, and something that also Hong Kong faces is that you're, 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 if you don't put in uh, uh, some guidance, then people will be forced ultimately to look at uh, offshore, unlicensed, unregulated uh, exchanges uh, because it is the internet, right? So um, that that's one thing. So we'll likely see some increased uh, public protections coming out. Um, in terms of where I think also there's a, a pretty bright future, uh, we're going to see wholesale CDBC, stable coins, uh, you know, they don't really see a need for retail CDBCs or, or public market CDBCs, uh, but really wholesale uh, CDBC, central bank uh, digital coins. Uh, it's positive for cross-border payments and settlements um, because it obviously reduces frictional costs. Um, new stablecoin regulations to be announced, I think, this month in October. Uh, some projects that and companies that were named were Project Orchard and MasterCard and uh, some of the recent uh, MAS announcements. And then finally, I think the MEAs is really kind of starting with what they know, uh, where they see digital asset uh, markets going is enterprise issued STOs, security token offerings for traditional assets. Um, the next cycle we can see regulators will be supportive of 
mainstream finance, established incumbents that want to issue equity debt. You know, some names that got mentioned in their last announcements were Partor, JP Morgan, Onyx, Nansen, Project Guardian. So the, these, these are some of the uh, uh, projects that we'll probably see uh, rising. So I think that generally uh, APAC adoption and, and, and innovation trends are going to continue, but we can probably expect uh, regulation just to also slowly be adopted and, and, and catch up. That's great to hear. Um, what are other regulatory developments to watch for in Asia? Um, you know, some of the things I'll, I'll probably see is that the, 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 just comparing Asia to the U.S., right? So the U.S. obviously is one big homogenous uh, regulatory environment I mean, and arguably a, a sort of a cultural um although a melting pot, but it's, uh, can be viewed as homogenous. Asia suffers from the fact that it's uh, rather heterogeneous across cultures, languages, and also a regulatory environment. Um, so it makes it a little bit more sort of tougher uh, to, to, to cover. And also, I guess, there's this uh, degree of reg uh, regulatory or regional uh, regulatory arbitrage. Um, so we see Thailand, obviously, the SEC. In Thailand, the SEC has uh, noticed that it's a big, big uptick in uh, uh, digital asset interest, right? And uh, certainly down when I was in Singapore, I saw a lot of interest of Thai entities coming down to Singapore to to investigate how they could access um, sort of that market because it's viewed as, let's say, a little bit more stable and re regulatory buff. Uh, so more to come there. Um, activity certainly in Malaysia uh, and Indonesia, again, uh, moving to Singapore uh, and, and looking at that as a, a sort of a stalwart of... Uh, as a pillar of stability. I think Hong Kong can certainly uh, continue to attract that. Um, so I think that uh, one of the things we are probably seeing is how there's a bit of a debate uh, within LegCo whether uh, rules should probably be loosened to allow uh, wider uh, retail uh, investors uh, to attain uh, or get access through licensed type seven entities such as OSL and Hashkey. Uh, these are the two that have uh, obtained, uh, in principle, all operating the virtual asset licensed exchanges. Um, you know, some of the city's biggest crypto marketplaces have exited for more global markets, such as Singapore and Dubai, and other offshore centers, uh, such as uh, Crypto.com, FTX, Diginex, uh, Bitmex, Hoibee, and OKX. They, they all at one point had a Hong Kong domicile, but now have uh, moved abroad. But I think that now what we're seeing is... Um, with this kind of current bull that's being sort of debated, uh, how can you actually allow uh, the wider uh, industry to perhaps maybe uh, be a bit more uh, focused, uh, provide education to some of the, the, the retail investors? Because even the retail investors, as many would note, are being forced to go to unlicensed exchanges uh, that are offered uh, more globally. Uh, possibly it would be better to have um, that activity uh, more sort of focused with uh, licensed entities where, you know, the sort of the control can can occur. So, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Uh, really, I am hopeful. Um, really, I am hopeful that uh, Hong Kong can sort of retain uh, some of its stature as an international finance center. And so I, I think that, uh, yeah, we'll happily continue to push for professional international standards uh, for the digital asset community uh, in HK as well. Good to hear. So I guess wrapping up, um, amid this current crypto winter that we're in um, and frequent news of job cuts in the crypto space, what's your outlook? I've been involved in this industry since 2016. Uh, this is actually crypto winter 2.5 for me, and I'm probably like the most relaxed <laughs> I've uh, been for uh, quite a while. 
although it's a highly volatile space and will continue to be a highly volatile space, uh, when you measure from trough to trough, this industry, both in market cap and in uh, um, people's involvement, is, is, is absolutely growing. Um, so I think that, you know, back in the day, early days, you couldn't get legal opinion. You couldn't get director's insurance. Uh, fast forward today, obviously, everyone's climbing over you to, to, to work with you. Um, another thing back then, you know, perhaps maybe digital assets, crypto wasn't uh, a topic people wanted to talk about. Uh, but, you know, fast forward today, again, right, you know, you've got much, let's say, uh, sexier uh, narratives and tailwinds such as Metaverse, such as Web3. And that is where you're going to find escapism. That's where you're going to find your entertainment. And really what crypto brings is the capitalistic rails uh, for people that now enter Web.3. And not, not only can they read um, data, not only can they write data, now they can effectively own uh, their data. So uh, the crypto rails for the last 10 years have been developing that. So I, I think that ultimately what uh, gives the sort of tailwind for the long term. Uh, so that's why I think the, the future looks pretty bright. Um, that said, you know, obviously we are in the crypto winter. So short term pain is being felt. Uh, crypto companies uh, operating in a sort of tech space, many cases remote um, first. Uh, it can be quite brutal, right, to sort of find out that, uh, you know, you've been let go uh, via uh, sort of a chat or, you know, it's possibly even worse than like investment banks uh, during 2008 during the GFC and just find out that your past doesn't work. Um, however, you know, I think that there's still going to be huge amounts of opportunity to work with uh, CFI um, crypto entities and institutions. And then for those that don't want to work for CFI institutions, there's always going to be a DeFi opportunity uh, to really build something that's new and innovative uh, within uh, the wider decentralized economies. And then just finally, I think that uh, just as witnessed, uh, I think that regulation is going to play a stronger hand within the industry and uh, uh, we can probably expect a lot more innovation to come from established CFI players, you know, whether you look at like things like BlackRock working with uh, the likes of Coinbase and State Street working with Copper, uh, Custodian and OSL, uh, or BC Group, rather, working with guys like Standard Chartered. I think there's all the points to point towards where institutions are, are going to be a lot more innovative offering services here as well. Very optimistic note. Um, do you have anything else to add? Uh, no. You know, I, I think it's really do your own research. Um, this is not investment advice, but uh, certainly uh, we, we've gone away from a world where, uh, you know, the, the, of uncertainty, um, within digital assets and certainly the, the, the macro still very much remains in charge, uh, zooming out. Um, and I think that in an uncertain time, perhaps maybe people are looking at uh, alternatives uh, such as the alternative digital asset landscape. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kevin. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Carrie. All the best.